Scripture reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salvation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will, shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this account. What a, what a wonderful thing this is. What, what, a, what a wonderful blessing you have given to us in the Lord Jesus. And we, uh, we would pray that you would deepen our understanding and our insight and our love and desire for your spirit to work in our midst and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. This is our fourth message in the series on the Holy Spirit. If you haven't been with us for the, the preceding three, uh, I'd really encourage you to, to go back and listen through those messages just so that you can get the, the groundwork for where we're going, which is we'll be examining the work of the Spirit first in the life of the Son of God and then the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the saints. This Sunday and Lord willing next Sunday, we're going to turn our focus to the activity of God the Holy Spirit in the life of God the Son, Jesus Christ. During the time from Jesus' conception to the time of his resurrection and ascension. In other words, we're going to examine the work of the Spirit in the life of the Son during the only time in the eternal existence of the Son of God in which he lived and walked among sinful men on this cursed earth. The first thing we must understand about the, the work of the Spirit in relation to Jesus the Son is that the Holy Spirit ever works to glorify the Son, not to glorify Himself. In John 16, verses 14 and 15, Jesus told His disciples that the Holy Spirit, whom He would send to them after His ascension, Quote, will glorify me, for he will take of mine and he will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. J.I. Packer, and I wanted to 
in a book called In Step with the Holy Spirit. It's just an outstanding and very accessible work on the Holy Spirit. It's not available in the library because I have it, but it will be back. In his book, Packer calls this the the floodlight ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, A floodlight that's pointing at a building does not have the purpose of drawing attention to itself. Its purpose is to draw attention to the building. Packer says, it is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder on Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message, he says, is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. But as always, look at Him and see His glory. Listen to Him and hear His Word. Go to Him, have life. Get to know Him and taste His gift of joy and peace. Packer says, the spirit we might say is the matchmaker, the celestial marriage broker, whose role it is to bring us and Christ together and to ensure that we stay together. End quote. And we'll see that this same truth applies in all of the Holy Spirit's dealings with us. We'll be looking in a couple of weeks at the Spirit's work in the lives of the saints. The same principle, the same truth applies in his dealings with us as applies in in his connection or relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is that everything the Spirit does in and through you and me is done to glorify Jesus. Not to glorify us, not to glorify the Spirit, but to glorify Jesus. We're going to come back to that truth over and over as we proceed through the rest of this brief series because God's Word continually brings us back to that to that beautiful truth. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because we, we need to begin with the Spirit's work in the life of Jesus before we talk about His work in our lives. And it is not possible to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in the earthly life, death, and resurrection of Jesus without first considering what it actually means that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became man. We have to take a close look at the incarnation to understand the Spirit's work in the life of Christ. So that's where we're going to put our focus this morning, is on the incarnation. We'll look at the Spirit's role in specific events in Jesus' life next time, Lord willing. But our objective this morning is to understand better the nature of Christ's incarnation and to ponder what the, what the Bible says about the relationship between the Spirit and the Son in the Son's earthly life during His first advent. His incarnation is forever. His incarnation on a cursed earth in mortal flesh was for a very brief time. A critical question that has to be answered on biblical grounds before we go very much further is, was Jesus the Son of God before his incarnation, or did he become the Son of God when he took on our humanness? Never does the Bible say that God sent a person who was not yet the Son to become the Son by taking on our humanity. Never does the Bible say that. 
Instead, it says over and over that God sent his one and only son from heaven to earth to take on our humanity and to, to live a sinless life, to die in our place and to be raised from the dead. Colossians 1 verses 15 and 16 says, says of the one who is called the beloved son of God the Father, it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that, that phrase, the firstborn of all creation, does not mean that Jesus himself was created. The use of the word firstborn there is about heirship, inheritance, and thus authority over creation. The right of the firstborn son is what Jesus was talking about when he said in John 16, 15, all things that the Father has are mine. Jesus is the one who exclusively possesses the right of the firstborn son of God over all created things. The fact that Jesus is creator rather than creature is crystal clear in the very next thing that Paul declares about him there in Colossians 1. Paul says, for by him, all things were created. Both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is, that means he exists before all things, and in him all things hold together. The one whom God the Father calls his beloved Son exists before all things. He is the great I Am. He created everything. John 1 says the same. He holds all things together. He has been the Son of God from eternity past before anything existed except God. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 1 John 4, verses 14 and 15 says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. John 3.16, on the banner in the end zone, <laughs> it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see the pattern? God sent his Son. In short, the eternal Son of God became the incarnate Son of God. Not temporarily, but from the moment of his conception as a human being throughout all the rest of eternity. The Son of God added, he added the nature of man to the divine nature that he already possessed. Now this is critically important, so please hear me. In an outstanding article uh, on the Gospel Coalition website titled The Incarnation and Two Natures of, of Christ, Stephen Wellham writes this. This is, very, this is very well stated. He says, It is crucial to think of the Incarnation as an act of addition, not subtraction. By the sovereign, effectual means of a virgin conception, the Son from the Father and by the supernatural and sanctifying agency of the Spirit 
without change, without loss of his deity, added a second nature to himself consisting of a human body and soul. As a result, the Son permanently added a human dimension to his personal divine life and became present to us in a new mode of existence as the incarnate Son. In his, that's the end of that quote. In his divine nature, Jesus is as fully God as the Father and the Spirit. Not three gods, but one God and three persons. In his human nature, Jesus is as fully human as you and I are. Yet without the sin nature that all of the rest of humanity inherited through Adam, which, by the way, is why he had to be born of a virgin. We have a lot more trouble understanding um, and embracing the human nature of Jesus than we do his divine nature. We're a lot more comfortable with the divinity of Christ than we are with the humanness of Christ. And, and that's something that I, that I pray will be helped a little this morning by the Word of God. Without a doubt, there is a great and transcendent mystery going on here. That our Creator God would take upon Himself the humanness of the creature without any compromise to His divinity is, is a truth that's way, way above our pay grade if we want to try to get our hands around it, right? In fact, we must be satisfied not to fully comprehend it. But this truth is asserted very clearly and repeatedly in God's Word, so we must believe, embrace, and proclaim it. Jesus, who always is fully God, became fully human without losing his divinity and without any connection with the sin of Adam except to take the guilt and penalty of our sin upon himself. Let's talk some more about the humanness of Christ. I, I want to consider for a few minutes how truly human, how truly human the human nature of Jesus was proven to be when he was here among men. That night in Bethlehem when Jesus was born to Mary, he was laid in an animal's feeding trough inside of a barn. Very inauspicious start. Jesus was not super baby. He didn't start preaching the word of God and performing miracles from the crib. He didn't know the word of God from the crib as man. Jesus had every bit of the very great dependence and need that is part of being an infant in this cursed world. He was as dependent on the care of his earthly mother Mary and his adopted father Joseph as any other infant has ever been on the care of their parents. Luke 2.52 says that as a youth, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. How many of you have found that uncomfortable, that statement uncomfortable at some point in your life? I have. I, I have trouble with that. Jesus increased and in, the Son of God increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men? 
How could this be? During his earthly life, Jesus experienced a full range of human emotions and experiences. Have you guys ever marveled at something that happened that you found surprising? Well, Matthew 8 verse 10 says Jesus marveled when he saw the faith of the centurion. Have you ever wept in grief over the death of someone that you dearly loved? In John 11, Jesus wept at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus just before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Have you ever felt compassion for someone who was downcast? Matthew 9 says Jesus felt compassion for the multitude because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever agonized when you knew that something very painful was surely about to happen? Well, I can tell you it was never anything as painful as what Jesus knew was going to happen the day after his arrest. Luke 22 tells us about the final hours and minutes that Jesus spent in the Garden of Gethsemane before, just before Jesus, Judas betrayed him into the hands of those who would demand his crucifixion. Verse 42 says, being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Jesus agonized because he knew what lay immediately ahead for him the next day. He knew that it would be a more profound and unspeakable pain than any man has ever suffered. He knew that his own beloved disciples would abandon him that night. He knew that the very next day his father would turn his face away from him as Jesus would bear upon himself the entire debt and penalty for our grievous rebellion against God. He came for that hour. Jesus came for that hour. But it was grievous. It was grievous in all respects. Have you ever experienced real hunger or thirst? Matthew 4 and Luke 4 tell us when Jesus was cast into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then in one of the many great understatements in the New Testament, both writers say, and he became hungry. Three years later, as he hung on the cross, struggling for his next breath, he said, I am thirsty. Beloved, Jesus experienced all of what it means to be a human being, living in a mortal, dying body on this cursed earth. He was as fully human as you and I, yet without sin. In his divine nature, as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus had no need of anything, ever. He is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. As perfect God, Jesus had no need, no lack of anything. He had no need to depend on the Holy Spirit for power to do miracles, for power to speak transforming truth, for power to walk through crowds that were trying to lay hold of him and put him to death, for power to raise his physical body from the dead. As the Son of God, Jesus had no need 
to receive power or comfort or encouragement or help. Yet throughout his earthly life and his suffering, in his suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus as perfect man was as utterly dependent on the ministry of the Holy Spirit as you and I are every moment of our lives. Let me say that again. Throughout his earthly life and in his suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus as perfect man was as utterly dependent on the ministry of the Holy Spirit as you and I are every moment of our lives. The Spirit is the person of the Godhead whom the triune God had decreed to instruct and mature and enable and empower and encourage the man, Christ Jesus. Philippians 2 tells us that the Son of God, the Lord of glory, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As we consider all that the New Testament declares about Jesus' constant reliance on the Holy Spirit during his first advent, we come to understand that when he emptied himself to take on our humanness, that emptying included becoming dependent as we are dependent. In his humanity, during his time in a mortal body on this cursed earth, Jesus needed the ministry of the Holy Spirit as utterly as you and I need his ministry every moment of every day of our lives. This is not something I made up. This is what godly students of the Word of God have been declaring for a very, very, very long time. It's just that we find it really hard to understand and, and to embrace. Why did our triune God decree that the incarnation of the Son of God would be this way? Well, the what is clearer than the why, but one thing that's clear about the why is that the humanness of Jesus was absolutely necessary for God to save sinners to the uttermost. Not only to give us eternal life after this earthly life, but also to set us apart and make us eternally useful to God right now. To conform us to Christ right now. If Jesus, as perfect man, had not become as genuinely human as you and I are, yet without sin, then his sacrifice of himself in our place would, have not, would not have been sufficient payment for our sin debt to God. And if Jesus, as perfect man, had not become as genuinely human as you and I are, yet without sin, he could not have been our perfect advocate and high priest to impart his holiness to us right now. Only the one sinless man could pay the sin debt that sinful men and women like you and me owe to God. Hebrews 10 makes this very, very clear. It says, in the, in the old covenant sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. They didn't get rid of sin. They reminded of sin. It says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, Jesus, comes into the world, he says, and then quotes the psalm that says, 
He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And after saying, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Jesus said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the writer of Hebrews says, okay, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then Jesus declares, but a body you have prepared for me. Why? So that I will be that sacrifice, that perfect, sufficient sacrifice. A body you have prepared for me. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus took on our humanness to become our perfect substitute in order to forever reconcile us to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. But Jesus also he also took on our humanness to be our forerunner in all things that have to do with our new identity as children of God. After declaring in the first few verses of the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact represent, representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, that same writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Therefore, listen, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So he makes propitiation. He's, he provides for our eternal salvation, and he also comes to the aid of those who are tempted. He had to be human to do both. Again in chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus became as we are, he alone was qualified not only to pay the eternal debt of our sin at the cross, but also to come to the aid of those who are tempted here and now. We draw near with confidence to his throne of grace and we get all the grace that we need there. That's a continual dependence. Now, here I believe is the hardest thing for us to comprehend about the incarnation 
of the eternal Son of God. Even though we can't fully comprehend it, we must agree with God that he declares it to be true. While there is an infinite distinction between the Son of God and us in his divinity, there is a wonderful and pervasive sameness between the Son of God and us in his humanity in every respect except for the sin nature that we have inherited from Adam. Beloved, it's that sameness that we struggle with. We find it so hard to believe that the Son of God had much in common with us. And yet the Bible over and over and over says he had everything in common with us except sin. And that's a lot. In his marvelous, marvelous uh, little book from the Puritan paperback series, um, R.J.K. Law distills John Owen's 600-page uh, book on the Holy Spirit down to a couple of hundred pages, and he smooths out the language. It's very accessible. I, I just learned from Jim it is still available on, on uh, Amazon. In this book, <laughs> it's a marvelous book, John Owen uh, makes, it, makes this issue of the two natures of Christ um, much more straightforward than I had ever heard it represented before. Now this, what I'm about to read may shake some of us up a little bit, but I am convinced that it's rigorously biblical and it explains a whole lot of what we find about, recorded about Jesus in the New Testament. Owen says the result of the Son of God taking human nature was that both the human nature and the divine nature were joined together in one person, never to be separated, not even when Christ's human soul was separated from his human body in the grave. This uniting of the two natures in the person of the Son of God does not mean, does not mean that the human nature became endowed with divine attributes. The human nature did not become omniscient and almighty, nor did the divine nature become endowed with human characteristics. The divine nature remained perfectly divine and never in any way became human, and the human nature remained perfectly human and never in any way became divine. When Christ cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are not to think that his divine nature separated from and forsook his human nature but only that at that moment his divine nature withdrew all light and comfort from his human nature. And then he says, the human nature of Christ therefore is not in any way endowed with divine attributes and the divine nature was free either to reveal divine truths and to give divine comfort and strength to the human nature or to withhold them. And we find many times in the gospel accounts that he withheld them. Without any conflict, without any battle of wills between those two natures. It's one, really one will, two natures. And that will is the will of the triune God. Without any conflict, Jesus bore a divine nature and a human nature, and in his human nature, beloved, he was like us. 
Over and over in the gospel accounts of Jesus' earthly life, we see Jesus speaking and acting in very great dependence on the Father and on the Holy Spirit. He prayed to his Father continually. He relied on the Spirit continually. When Jesus emptied himself to take the form and substance of man, he in his divine nature did not set aside any of the attributes of God that would have made him less than God. What he did very strategically set aside during that time when he was here among sinners was the exercise of those divine attributes as man. Jesus voluntarily divested himself of the use of many, of many aspects of his divine nature to live for 33 years as a man as utterly dependent on the involvement and activity of the Father and the Spirit in his life as every mortal man now is. Again, we don't understand how this worked. That's fine. What we need to know is that this is how God's Word presents the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ from the time of His conception to the time of His resurrection and ascension to reclaim the fullness of the glory that belongs to Him at the right hand of His Father. His glory right now is not the same as His glory when He was here. Not even the same as His glory when He was resurrected. Read the first chapter of Revelation and you'll see what I'm talking about. This truth, more than any other truth that we will ever know, makes the activity of the Holy Spirit in the earthly life of Jesus exceedingly relevant to the activity of the same Holy Spirit in our lives every moment of every day. But again, our foremost concern and pursuit as we examine and ponder this astonishing truth is to know first what it tells us about our triune God before we start considering what it tells us about us. At this point, and for all of next Sunday's message, if God wills, we're going to consider the Holy Spirit's activity in several key events in the life of Jesus. The one event that we'll consider for the little bit of time that remains this morning will be the Spirit's role in Jesus' incarnation, conception, and birth. The first thing the Holy Spirit did related to the, 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 the incarnation of Christ is he proclaimed it. That the long-promised Messiah King would be born as a child is not new revelation in the New Testament. Nearly 700 years before the promise of Jesus' birth was fulfilled, God declared through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Two chapters later in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, that you all know from Handel's Messiah, God said, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. And there shall be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it in justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. 
When the angel Gabriel was sent by God to tell the young woman Mary that the long-promised child would be born to her, here's what Gabriel said. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary had just one question for Gabriel. Her question was not about whether this promise was going to, to take place. It was about how. She said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High, that's the Father, will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child, literally the Holy Begotten One, shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. That's quite a pattern in the Bible if you haven't noticed. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. What a beautifully Trinitarian promise. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High, that's God the Father, and that's, we know that from a couple of verses earlier, will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Begotten One shall be called the Son of God. We know from verse 32 that the one called the Most High God is God the Father. The Father and the Spirit were actively and intimately involved in the conception and birth of the Holy Begotten One whose birth had been long promised through the prophets. The last thing that Gabriel said to Mary was, for nothing will be impossible with God. Does that sound familiar? Jesus said it after the encounter with the rich young ruler, but if you go way back before that, all the way back to Genesis chapter 18, I believe Gabriel, the angel, was drawing Mary's attention back to a passage that was written around, oh, you know, 1440 B.C. In Genesis 18, God promised another miraculous birth long before the birth of Jesus. In that chapter, the angel of Yahweh, who I believe is the pre-incarnate Christ, appeared to Abraham and Sarah. He told Abraham that Sarah, who was postmenopausal, which is what the phrase beyond the manner of childbirth, that's what that means, postmenopausal, that she would miraculously bear a son at that same time the following year. When Sarah overheard this, she laughed a laugh of disbelief. And she said to herself, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? At that point, the angel of Yahweh, who knew what, what Sarah was saying to herself from a distance, said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? The answer is no. If God's promise to Sarah that she would bear a son by her husband 
in her old age seemed impossible to her? Imagine how God's promise to Mary must have struck her in her youth. She was probably a teenage girl. Jewish women in that era married late teens. What an infinitely greater miracle that the Son of the Most High God would be conceived in her by the Holy Spirit of God without the involvement of any man. Yet Mary's response was not to laugh. Her response was to believe the promise of God. She said to Gabriel, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And <laughs> that response reminds me of, of Mary's predecessor's response back in 2 Samuel 7 when God gave the promise to King David that a son would come from him whose throne and kingdom and dominion would be forever. David replied to God saying, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken. Jesus had no earthly father except as Joseph's adopted son. His one and only father was, is, and always will be God the Father. His deity was and is that of the eternally existing third person of the Trinity, the Word of God, Son of God, by whom everything that exists was created. His humanness was through Mary, a teenage woman of not very great means on this earth. In his deity, Jesus has always been and will always be mighty God, possessing all the attributes of the one true God. But in his humanness, he took upon himself the same pain and the same painful limitations that you and I face every day of our lives here under the curse only his pain was far worse. He was as dependent on the watchful care of his Father and on the continual help of the Holy Spirit as you and I are, yet without sin. During his short life and immortal body, as vulnerable and as frail as yours and mine, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, voluntarily set aside the full expression of his divine nature in order that in his human nature he might in every respect be the firstborn among many brethren. It seems to me that many Christians don't think they're allowed by God's word to believe these things about Jesus. But this is what God's word declares to be true about Jesus. And it explains a whole lot. Jesus was conceived in the Virgin Mary's womb without the involvement of mortal man by the mighty and miraculous work of the Spirit. He came into this world as a newborn infant, every bit as needy and utterly dependent as every infant ever born. As a child, he had to learn to speak the language of his parents and of his culture, just like every other child has had to do throughout history. He learned the revelation of God to man through the Word of God that was taught in the synagogues. As a youth, he grew in wisdom and stature before God and men through the loving nurture of his parents and the faithful work of the Holy Spirit. 
before he began his ministry at age 30. He lived and he worked and he helped support his family after his father's death. He was a hardworking carpenter's son, no doubt with the scars to prove it because it is, it is not sinful to hit your thumb with a hammer. He got up, he prayed, and he communed with his heavenly father, no doubt ate breakfast, went to work every day except on the Sabbath, which he observed without exception, along with all the sacrifices and festivals, as the only Jew and only man who ever actually kept the whole law. Hebrews 5 verse 8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered because he was a man. It doesn't mean at all Jesus went from disobedience to obedience. It means that as man, he had to experience testing in all things in order to manifest obedience in all things. Almost done here. Jesus took on our humanness, beloved, not in part, but in full. In full, yet without sin. For this reason, he is the perfect and only sufficient substitute to bear the sin debt of sinners like you and me. And he is the perfect, perfect forerunner and example for you and me to live as the redeemed children of God in utter dependence on the marvelous help of the Holy Spirit in a manner that delights his Father whom he has made our Father. If you're looking for the application part of this message, the specifics will come when we talk about the work of the Spirit and the saints. The application for today, beloved, is to know and to ponder and to pray back to God the marvelous truth that He has revealed regarding the incarnation of God the Son as perfect man, fully God and fully man. We'll devote one more Sunday to the ponder, at least one more, to the pondering the work of the Spirit and the Son, and then we'll be ready to consider the work of the Spirit and the saints. Let's pray. Father, uh, these, are, these are profound, kind of mind-blowing truths. And yet, this is so very pertinent to us right now in our daily lives. Father, Jesus is... He is the perfect substitute and He is the perfect forerunner in the faith. He is the perfect advocate for redeemed sinners day by day. Father, just grant to us that, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and we would have hearts that respond in awe and in gratitude because You sent Your beloved Son to take on our humanness in order that we might be made yours forever. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.